ask that you open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to receive any and all the graces that you are longing to give us tonight. Help us to be readily disposed to receive those and to cultivate them and to meet you where you want to meet us. We ask these things in your most holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, thanks for letting me be with you. Uh, as Blake said, my name is Josh Burks. Uh, I teach with the Emmaus Institute. Uh, and this is one of my favorite things to get to talk about uh, because it's so foundational to the Christian life, prayer, uh, specifically praying with Scripture. So that's, that's going to kind of be the momentum. Uh, so much could be said, an overwhelming amount could be said, of course, about just the topic of prayer and spirituality and Scripture. So we're going to be broad in our just introduction into what is prayer. Uh, how we can become acquainted with prayer in the spiritual life. And then we're going to hone into to one specific avenue of prayer, uh, a common practice. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Lexio Divina, uh, a common way of engaging with Scripture in one's personal prayer life. And we're going to try and, and shed some light there. At the start here, I want to give you full permission to interrupt with questions and comments. Uh, because if there's silence, I'm just going to fill it. Uh, so, so feel free to bug me if you, if you have a question or you want to camp out on something a little bit longer, uh, very flexible. Okay. Everyone have a handout. Great. I'll be referencing that. Uh, just have a few quotes and things that we'll walk through tonight. Uh, opportunity for you to, um, fill in wherever you want. So looking at the beginning, we're going to go part one, an introduction to the life of prayer. And under 1.1, 1 .1, uh, a few quotes are going to be pulled from this book, Prayer Primer, by Father Thomas Dubay. Uh, and this is a wonderful one to have on your shelf. Uh, it's, it's a good book for any novice to prayer. Say, hey, I don't really know how to pray, and I think I want to learn how to pray and begin a, begin a life of prayer. This is a great book. If you're like, hey, I've been praying for a while now, and I think I want to go deeper, this book is also going to challenge you to go deeper. So it's going to be one of those resources you can always consult throughout your prayer life. Uh, Thomas Dubay, he says, Men and women everywhere are hungry and thirsty, voraciously yearning and seeking, rich and poor, wise and foolish, young and old, literate and illiterate, saints and sinners, atheists and agnostics, playboys and prostitutes. Some can explain their inner emptiness in words. Most cannot but everyone experiences it. That inner ache drives all our dreams, desires, and decisions, good and bad. Deep in our humanness is an ache for fullness, for infinity. And it's that ache for infinity, or that really what we could recognize as that ache for God, uh, that I want to, to draw us into as, as our starting point for prayer. Uh, eventually we'll get to the starting point of prayer is, of course, God, as God is going to be the source and summit of all things. But we can even look to just the human experience alone and realize what, what Thomas Dubay here is getting at, that we have this, this ache inside of us for something greater than ourselves, for something more than we can find in ourselves or, or produce from ourselves. And, and we have this inkling, whether we have a, a Christian cate catechesis or not, there's this awareness about us that we're made for something good. 
And as Christians, of course, we know that we're made for the good, right? capital T, capital G, the good in, in Christ. But we don't even need the, the fullness of that revelation quite yet to realize that we're, that we're made for something good. And we can at least even realize that we can recognize good. I can, I can watch the news, I can observe current events, and I can say, oh, that's good. Or I can see mostly, if you're watching the news, you're probably not saying, oh, that's good. If you're watching the news, most likely you're watching the news saying, oh, that's bad. Right? You can hear of a tragedy, you can hear of a wildfire, you can hear whatever it is. You see it and you can recognize it without some Christian catechesis telling you, oh, that's bad. You see suffering and you say, that's bad. Well, how do we know how to recognize that? Because in our bones, we're made for something good. That's that ache for eternity. That's that ache for the infinity, really trying to, to break out of its shell inside of us. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, a fish doesn't know it's wet? Uh, right? A fish doesn't know it's wet. Because that's just, that's life. Well, how do we know what's good and bad without someone telling us what's good and bad? Or at least someone writing that like into our, into our very existence, into our bones, into our DNA. Because we're made for a certain good, which is, of course, capital T, capital G, the good. And it, and it invites us to discover what is, what is the source of that good, right? What is that good pulling us to? And there's a good that we can't achieve in our, on our own, so we seek that good, and ultimately we seek that good in God. And that's really one of the starting points on the basis of human experience that we can enter into a conversation about prayer. Because prayer is how we seek that good, and it's the avenue of how we also attain that good. It's not only just a, a search party, but it's a, it's a finding, and it's in a discovery, and it's a ownership of the good. And so prayer is when we, when we search for and when we encounter that good that we're made for, which of course is God. And so 1.2, we're made with restless hearts. The famous St. Augustine wrote at the beginning of his confessions that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So that's where that comes from, and that we're made in the image of God. One of my favorite theologians and, and churchmen who recently passed at the end of 2023, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, he wrote, Therefore, being made in the image of God means, in a word, relationality. In response to the question, what actually distinguishes man from animal? What is it about man that is so new and special? We must therefore say, he is that being which God has given the ability to think, the one that can go beyond all the things of this world and reach out to the other. We might say that he is the one being that can pray. That is, not only he can think of God, but he's also capable of entering into a relationship with him. This is Pope Benedict reflecting on that verse from Genesis that's right below, Genesis 1, 26, where we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are made in the image of something else. Now notice that we are not the image. We are made in the image. 
uh, that that humanity, the human experiment, is not out of nowhere, right? But it, it's coming off of a, a preset design, a preset mold, right? Which is the image, and we are made in that image, and ultimately that image is is God, who is a communion of persons. And so when we realize that we're made, as Pope Benedict says, for for relationality. We realize that that's that's written into our very creation that we're made to be in a communion of persons, and when we start to connect these dots, that that we we ache for this good that we can't achieve on our own, right? You can't go in the middle of nowhere in the woods and lock yourself in a cabin and realize, oh, I, I found the good that I'm searching for by just going more interior in myself. Like the human experience is found in that outreach of of other. And we, day to day, we experience that in our relationships, right? In our friendships, in our family, spousal relationships. And ultimately, we're made for that relationship with God because we're made in, in His image. And so this is the Lord inviting us to participate in that relationality, as Benedict says. Our human nature is not functioning properly if it's not functioning out of this, this context of relationship. And ultimately, we're made for that relationship with the one who made us. And that's prayer. Right? Prayer invites us into that relationship. Prayer is the search for that relationship. And prayer is our engagement in that relationship. And then 1.3, is, as far as our introductions go, is just an encouragement to keep our eyes focused on Christ. That Christ is the image of prayer. Right, we talked about that we are not the image, but we're made in the image. Well, if we're just, if we're the, taken lightly here, if we're the copies, right, who's the original? Whose image are we made in? Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so as we, as we take in this, this life of, of learning how to pray, it's going to be a roller coaster, okay? You, you may be a novice to prayer. It's like I don't, I, prayer hasn't something that's, that's routine in my life, but I feel like I want it more. And the inspiration is great, and use every bit of it that you can, but just be prepared for a bumpy ride. There's going to be high highs, and there's going to be low lows. And for the experienced one who prays, they're, they're on that ride, and they know that more is ahead. There's going to be times of overwhelming joy and consolation and feeling like, wow, this is incredible. I'm, I'm loved. God is real. Uh, and, and he's calling me into this abundant life. And then there's going to be times where you're like, is any of this even real? Um, I really questioning all of this. The best thing you can do is just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because he is the one whose image we're made in. So he is the one who has the, the perfection and the fullness of what we're searching for. There's a document from one of the church councils, Second Vatican Council, called Gaudium et Spes. It's one of my favorite lines. At Emmaus, we have favorite lines from church councils. That's just, I, if <laughs> maybe you don't, but we definitely do. Uh, and this is, depending on the day, it's either my favorite or in my top three. And we're going to read the full paragraph, but those words in bold uh, are really the takeaway. It says, the truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, 
namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. It is not surprising then that in him all the aforementioned truths find their root and attain their crown. If you want to just kind of synthesize that and milk that paragraph for for what it's really worth, just that one takeaway, Christ fully reveals man to man himself. So if we want to look to what is the perfect image of what it looks like to pray, we need to look to Christ. And not only prayer, but just the, the full human experience. I mean, insert, insert your own name into that line. Like Christ fully reveals Josh to Josh himself. If I want to, to search for it, like, what's the best that I am made to be? I'm not going to find that anywhere but in Christ. Where is the, the perfect example of someone who lived joyfully? In Christ. What's the perfect example of living in, in peace and, and in virtue? Christ. Because he is the image of what we are made to be. Are you struggling with not only prayer, but I'm just struggling with daily habits. I'm struggling to grow in virtue. I'm struggling to be courageous. I'm struggling to be disciplined and, and temperate. Where do I look to grow in these things? Not, not inwardly, but we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Christ was perfectly courageous. He was perfectly temperate. So don't beat yourself up, right? If we're entering into this journey of the spiritual life, uh, don't beat yourself up when it gets hard. Uh, and you start turning inward and saying, you know, this is, this is complicated and I'm not sure if I'm getting this. Uh, because if, if, you lear- if you're looking on yourself for too long, you're, you're looking at the wrong person. We just, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Moving a little bit, deeper into prayer. Number two in the handout. Uh, Father Dubay has another quote. He says, prayer is both simple and deep and immensely enriching, leading to unspeakable love and delight. Prayer is not complicated because there's nothing more natural than to converse with your beloved and most especially with your supreme beloved. If all grows normally, it becomes deep because it's rooted in your profound human and spiritual reality in who and what you are as a man or woman. And I love that image of prayer. There's nothing more natural than to converse with your beloved. There's nothing more natural than for me to to finish being here with you all tonight and to go home and to relax and catch up and have a conversation with my wife. Because I pursue a daily relationship with her and I want that and it brings me joy and I want to bring her joy. There's nothing more natural than that at the end of the day. And, and that's the relationship that we're seeking as we enter into this relationship called prayer. Now in 2.1, I want to kind of begin backwards by saying what prayer is not, because oftentimes our view of prayer can be pretty skewed uh, or at least isolated just on one component of what prayer can be. Don't get me wrong, prayer can be these things, but it should not be only these things. So first, prayer is not a get better program. It's not a like, hey, I tried Jenny Craig and you should too. Like, I tried Christianity, you should too. It made me the best me. It's not a way just to, to, to climb up the ladder of how to be your best self. Letter B, it's not a transaction for eternal life. 
and this is a pitfall for I, myself every day of trying not to view prayer as a transaction. Lord, will you please answer this request if I just pray a little bit more? If I just pray a little bit harder, surely you'll, you'll, you'll hear me and I'll, I'll woo you over if I just pray that much more. Or if I memorize this and that, or if I, if I just try that much harder, I'll win you over, right? That's just a transaction. That's like going to a store and saying, well, if I just give you one or two more dollars, you'll, you'll give me that, the better product. We're not trying to win God over in prayer. The, the, the better word instead of transaction is prayer is an act of transformation. God wants to transform us even when we're asking him of things, things small or things big. But it's not a transaction. See, it's not a moral reaction to suffering. Prayer and the spiritual life is not just, uh, oh, well, they, they told me to, to offer it up, so I guess I'll just kind of bottle, bottle it all up and not address it and just, you know, trudge through the mud of this, of this trial or trudge through the mud of this suffering. It's not just a, a moralized way of, of saying, well, you just, you're going to suffer, so you might as well just do it piously. It's not a broom in the closet. Here's another common one that I think we all do. What's the broom in the closet for? It's for cleaning up messes, right? So something breaks, something gets dirty. You go and you get your broom and you clean it up. And when it's clean, do you need the broom anymore? No, so you you go and put it back in the closet. Uh, Really easy to treat prayer like that, right? Hey, God, me again, messy situation here. Could use your help. And then when it's resolved, it's, oh, wow, I don't really have anything to talk to you about anymore. So you can go back nicely in your, in your tucked away closet. Prayers should not be a, a broom in the closet just to clean up our messes. And letter E. Prayer is not a checklist for membership requirements. It's not, oh, well, I'm going to be a Christian. So I've got my card and I'm going to do these many prayers. Check, check, check. And guess I'm a Christian now because I, I prayed today. Um, that is not what it means to have a relationship with someone. Uh, imagine me trying to pull that off with my wife. You know, well, I just, I did these things routinely today and gosh darn it, that makes me a good husband, right? So prayer can be these things. The Lord does want to come like a broom and, and help clean up our messes or when things get dirty. Prayer does transform us to living a better, more fully authentic life. The Lord does hear and answer our prayers, but let's not restrict prayer to being just one or a few of these things. Instead, I, I want to encourage us to think as prayer, think of prayer as a response and as a relationship. A response and a relationship. And there are a few lines from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that I'm sure that's familiar at this point. You've probably looked at things, parts, or lines from the Catechism. Okay. Um, one of the most breathtaking parts is the very first sentence. Here's the very first sentence of paragraph one of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. Holy moly. Just pause there. (laughs) You could spend a long time unpacking every part of that sentence. Let's go on and read the rest. For this reason, 
At every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin, into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son as Redeemer and Savior. In his Son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs of his blessed life. Prayer is a response because we are not the initiators. God is the initiator. Right? You go back. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. God does not need our prayer. Sounds maybe a bit scandalous, but it's true. He wants it, okay, and there's the differentiation, but God does not need us to pray to be happy or to to be loved or to be in a relationship, in a perfect communion of persons. He doesn't need our prayer, but he invites us into it. He wants us in this relationship. God is the initiator. God is the mover drawing us into this. That's why it says at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. There, there are bound to be times, we all do it, we're human, where you know we might have a, an extra spiritual or pious day and we go like, man, go me. I really rocked it today. Uh, I was just such an initiator in my prayer life. I you know, offered up these my, my little sacrifices throughout the day, and I really just committed myself to prayer. And we might be tempted to think that like, I was the initiator of a really healthy and vibrant spiritual life today. No, you were the responder, and you just listened well to God at every time and at every place in your day, drawing you into that relationship that he wants to have with you. So prayer is a response. Prayer is also a relationship. Uh, Another catechism quote under 2.3, paragraph 2565 says, In the new covenant, prayer is the living relationship of the children of God with their Father, who is good beyond measure, with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. The grace of the kingdom is the union of the entire holy and royal trinity with the whole human spirit. Thus, the life of prayer is the habit of being in the presence of the thrice holy God and in communion with him. This communion of life is always possible because through baptism, we have already been united with Christ. Prayer is Christian insofar as it is communion with Christ and extends throughout the church, which is his body. Its dimensions are those of Christ's love. So the catechism is is just pretty outright that prayer is a relationship and prayer is the engagement of that relationship that the Father is initiating, that the Trinity is initiating with us. If we were, were tasked with, you know, say we, we come to OCIA or we come to Mass or we come to a Bible study and it's our job to come up with what, what's eternal life. Let's define or, or qualify and quantify what is eternal life. Because that's, that's the goal in some sense, Right? eternal life and beatitude with God. So how do we, how do we describe that? Well, we don't have to. Jesus did in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Boom! There it is. <laughs> There's the definition. What's eternal life? 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowledge. And not just knowledge here, like, okay, I know that God is good. I know that God is love. I know that God is merciful. But relational knowledge. Right? I could give you a certain fact sheet about, about my wife, but do any of you know her? Barring Chad. <laughs> no. Right? Like I know her? Certainly not. So there, there are levels of these relational knowledge, so much so that, that the Bible itself uses that word as a euphemism for intimacy between man and wife. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son and named him Cain. Right? Uh, the, the beginning of Exodus is fascinating when it said, And Pharaoh did not know Joseph. Well, surely he knew, he knew who Joseph was. But did he know Joseph? That is to say, did he have a, a, a fruitful relationship with Joseph and his progeny? No. Thus the story of the Exodus. This is what God is calling us into. This is eternal life. is defined by a relationship. That they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So with that, uh, just a few, I don't know, here and there's on some specific uh, practicalities, manifestations of prayer that are, that are perhaps common in the Catholic and Christian life. 2.4, traditional forms and expressions of prayer. Uh, this is uh, going all the way back. I, I mean, I think I learned this as a child, the, the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, and the kind of the four categories of prayer that you could generally qualify what, you know, what type of prayer it is. Uh, does anyone know them? Does anyone know what the A in ACTS is for? Adoration, right? Where does adoration, in a Catholic setting, where would we say that adoration finds its highest expression. Where do we go to perfectly adore, or the most perfectly that we can? Yeah, I heard church, I heard mass. Exactly. When we participate in that offering of Christ that's, that's represented in the Eucharist, made present to us, that is the highest form of adoration that we can participate in. But we don't need to only be at mass or in a pew to adore the Lord, right? We can adore him at, at any time and in any place. But it's, it's first for a reason, right? It's first because it fits nicely in the acronym ACTS, but it's also first because prayer should always, or at least I, I would recommend, and I, and I think it flows from this, that prayer should always start either verbally or at least just from a, disp, uh, a disposition of adoration. It's really hard to have a vibrant two-way relationship when all I do to someone is I just go and I immediately start asking for things, which is often what prayer ends up being. But what happens when that relationship is, is foundationally defined by me expressing my adoration for you, how I adore you. Okay, so Christian prayer is, is built upon adoration. We can also adore by offering our sacrifices, right? Because that's what Jesus on the cross is. He gave himself as a loving sacrifice so we can join our sacrifices. Man, got a rock in my shoe? <laughs> I can offer that up and join it to Christ's sacrifice as my part in adoring, offering sacrifice. C, does anyone know what the C is for in Acts? Contrition, yeah, yeah, contrition. Uh, this is our, our sorrowing for sin, uh, especially sacramentally. 
in the Catholic Church. This would be chiefly expressed when we go to the sacrament of confession and receive that gift of absolution that Christ entrusted to the apostles and then they entrusted their priests. But again, now all, all um, sorrowing for sin, all streams lead back to receiving absolution in the sacrament of confession. But do I need to wait until I'm in a confessional to express my sorrow for sin? No. Right? That's, that's that relationship of prayer. Say I, say I stumble and I, just, I know that I, I, I slipped and I just didn't say something well or I just had a bad attitude with my wife. Like, do I need to wait until our next date night or time that we have just like a serious one-on-one in order to say like, hey, you know, a couple months back, I'm sorry for when I did that. No, what, what's the most important thing we can do when we come to a realization of, ah, I think I fell short there. Is just in that moment, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. That was my mistake, and that was my shortcoming. Uh, please forgive me. And I'm going to make my best effort to, to make my way to confession at a prudent time. T, so we have adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, right? And that's, that's fairly self-explanatory. It's closely linked with adoration. Uh, repeatedly, the psalmist in the church hearken uh, to our privilege and our duty of expressing gratitude to the Father for every every good and perfect gift that comes from him. So it can be uh, prayers of thanksgiving. It can also just be, a, a, again, a disposition of thanksgiving, a realization of just being thankful for the good things that have come before us. And lastly, S, nice, supplication. Supplication, it's our longing and our yearning. Our petitionary prayers, probably the most common expression of prayer, is our supplication, asking the Lord for those things. Other forms of prayer here listed briefly. We don't have time to dig into each of them as much as I'd love to. Other forms of prayer, the Mass. The Mass is a prayer, right? Uh, Praying with Scripture, which we'll talk about here in the second half. Meditation and contemplation. I'll attempt to define those also in part two. Um, But let me just go ahead and say, even just with a brief surface-level understanding of meditation and contemplation, it finds its fullest fruit in when we're meditating and contemplating upon holy things, upon God himself and, and those things of God, but also just meditating God's creation. One of my favorite moments in life to go back to is times few I, that I wish there were more. Um, I got to go on a retreat in the mountains and, and we got to go up before the sunrise and we just, we watched the sun crest over a mountain peak and I was just in awe of that. And it just, it, and it led me to meditate and I still can. Like, I can meditate on how beautiful that was, recognizing that as a gift from God, as, as a sign of his goodness, even just in creation. Uh, going down that bullet point, scripted and spontaneous vocal prayer, right? You might, if, if you're discerning your way into the Catholic church, you're going to realize that there is just a uh, an ocean of traditional scripted prayers. Take them as you wish. You're, you're not obliged to memorize all of them. Uh, they are just ways that others who have gone before us said, oh, this is kind of a helpful way of expressing this feeling. So I'm going to put it, <laughs> I'm going to put pen to paper and I'm going to do so. Some have been um, so eloquent and revered that they become kind of canonized in our liturgy. So the Mass is always the same scripted prayer, but we can also be invited into a life of spontaneous prayer, 
just I'm driving in the car, I'm with my spouse, I'm with my family, I'm alone, I'm at work, I'm in time of prayer. I just speak from the heart to the Lord. Spontaneous prayer. Delighting and rejoicing. Music, other forms of veneration, right? Uh, we bow, we kneel before the Lord. Sacred silence. That's tough in a culture today. Uh, you might hear of, of retreats where people go off for a weekend or even an eight-day, even a 30-day silent retreat. Uh, I don't think I've even done an eight. And I can tell you now I'll never do a 30 because I have kids. So life will never be silent for 30 days. <laughs> um, devotionals, for example, uh, probably the most popular Catholic devotional is the rosary. The sign of the cross is itself a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we say amen, and that itself can be a prayer. That's what we say before we receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. It means I believe. Okay? So even just the, the smallest of things and the greatest of things can be prayer. Uh, I'm going to have to summarize. Um, unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm getting a little lengthy on some of these things, and I do want to get to uh, a recommendation and kind of a rubric of this practice of Lectio Divina. Uh, so let me just kind of summarize some of these sections in number three and number four, because I do still think that they're helpful. And if we, if we buy some time at the end and there are things you want to clarify or, or turn back to, I'd be happy to go back. Any questions or comments now? Okay, continued reminder and invitation to interrupt, should you have one. Number three, the telos of prayer, which is a fancy way of just saying, what's the end goal of praying? Union with God. Second uh, Peter chapter one tells us at the very end there of that quote, that we're made to become partakers of the divine nature. That we're made to experience union with God. Right? That union that's symbolized by, by man and woman becoming one, that's just a sign of something greater that we are called to experience with God himself. My favorite quote in this area of, of being drawn into union with God comes from my patron saint, St. John of the Cross. And he, he's contemplating these mysteries of how souls are, are slowly, step by step, transformed um, in, in uniting themselves with God. And I just, I love this imagery. He says, fire when applied to wood first dehumidifies it, dispelling all moisture and making it give off any water it contains. Then it gradually turns the wood black, makes it dark and ugly, and even causes it to emit a bad odor. By drying out the wood, the fire brings to light and expels all those ugly and dark accidents that are contrary to fire. Finally, by heating and enkindling it from without, the fire transforms the wood into itself and makes it as beautiful as it is itself. It has just stunning imagery for the life of prayer. And it also is it's a good wake-up call to that roller coaster that we talked about, that there's going to be high highs and there's going to be low lows. You, you, you dive into this relationship with that one whose image we're made in. And at first, it can, it can just be pure bliss. But then when, when you stand in the sunlight for long, when you haven't really ever stepped into the light, you start to realize all those accidents and all those 
murky spots about yourself. And that can happen. But that's not a reason to jump out, right? Because the fire and the wood haven't really achieved their, their perfect end yet. The end goal of the fire is to make the wood like itself. But that's gonna, it's going to be a process of transformation. It's not just going to be an instant change. That is the end goal of this life of prayer and in the spiritual life that, that God is calling us to. He wants to make us like himself. That's awesome. Uh, we're called to be partakers of God's nature, of something that's, that's far greater than we can even imagine. Right? That famous line from St. Paul, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God is ready for those who love him. And so keeping that in mind, as we, as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who is the image of prayer, uh, keeping that in mind, that that's the end that I'm made for. And even what feels like a bump in the road is something that's advancing me toward that final end. Let me just walk through some, some helps and hindrances here, and then we'll move on to talking about Lexio Divina. So helps and hindrances. Some common struggles for, for building a spirit of prayer. I feel like I should almost have like a, a little... You know, like you go to an auction and you, and you raise it if you want to uh, bid. Like I'll just I'll just go through these lines and doubts and temptations that we experience, and I, I just feel like we should all just raise our hand. But it's going to be every single one because we all experience these temptations and these doubts. A, I'm too busy to pray. This is it, it, simply it's a result of priority. We're all given the same amount of time, right? My my seven year old son Elijah has uh, he's on a basketball team right now. And he has a game this Saturday. Well, that's going on the calendar. We're going to that basketball game. It's priority. We made the decision that he's going to play basketball. And we paid money for it. So we're invested. It's, it's hardly even one of those things where I don't look at my wife and say, well, we signed him up for basketball. Should we go to the game? Like, no. It, without even really thinking about it, it became a priority. And so I'm, I'm giving my time to that. I don't have time for prayer is, is just simply saying it's not a priority in the long list of things that I prioritize right now. And that can be, that can be a light discussion of saying, oh, I want to make it a priority. Sometimes that can be a hard realization. And it conflicted with other thoughts. You can say, well, you know, we, we're going to go down the list and say, but I don't even really want to pray. Right? And so we have to make prayer a priority. When we realize the, the ultimate end of all of this is, is our greatest good that we could achieve, what other priorities could I put above that? How about letter B? Honestly, I don't want to pray. It's too much work. Right? This might be uh, what we call the vice of sloth. Aquinas, that famous Catholic saint and scholar, St. Thomas Aquinas, he defines sloth as sorrow, for spiritual good, just kind of lamenting at wanting to be better. And additionally, lack of desire, which is really what's going on here, is a product of boredom. And boredom is really just uh, misunderstanding at the end of the day. Right? You think of like, you think of my kids, uh, and, and I want to tell them something interesting, and I want to show them interesting, show them something interesting. And the younger they get, the less interested they are in it. Like I can show them uh, a 90s Husker football game and, and they'll be distracted in 30 seconds. And I would say like, don't you see what's going on before you? This is greatness. This is entertainment, right? 
Well, they don't understand what it is yet, so they're bored. Boredness is just misunderstanding. So if you're saying, oh, I don't want to pray, it's boring. Well, perhaps I don't really understand what prayer is and what, what God is calling me to here. How about letter C? I don't know how to pray, or even when or if I do, I get too distracted. Well, this can be due to a lack of, again, it's, it's, they're all interrelated, lack of priority. It's just a lack of experience. You can say that about anything that you want to start, right? You're going to start as a novice. But that's okay. You just make gradual steps every day. Prayer is not something to, to master. We're never going to master it. It's just like a muscle that we have to develop and build upon every day. And if we don't build upon it, it's just going to atrophy and wither away. Letter D, I have a weak self-image. I can't even bring myself to pray before God. Um, I'm not worthy. That's, that can be real and something we struggle with. That can also be you just looking at yourself too much. If that's something you're struggling with, stop looking at yourself and just imagine how God is looking at you at that moment. Because as we talked about, he's the initiator. <laughs> he's the one seeking you out. So instead of me looking at myself, how about I, I fixate on how a loving father would be looking at me in this moment? And I start to build my image and identity on that. Letter E, I can never tell when it's God speaking or when it's just in my own head. Again, largely the human experience can be a result of, of a lack of just experience and training. Right? This is going to be one of those calls to, to, to live in Scripture, the, the sure place of God's voice. And we learn how God speaks and we learn how God acts. And then we become a little more familiar with, oh, that sounds like, that sounds like the Lord. Or, no, that doesn't really sound like something the Lord would tell me right now. Like, you're worthless. Why didn't you pray today? been reading a lot from, from Scripture, and that doesn't really sound like something God tells people. Okay? So you, you, just, you, you begin to discern and, and realize and learn what the voice of the Lord sounds like. 4.2, let me just blitz through these uh, conducive habits to building a spirit of prayer. Making time, prioritizing time, prioritizing a place, right? Regularity and schedule, following consolations and desires, Right? There's no need to strong arm the movements of the Holy Spirit. Um, if he's leading you toward a certain place in prayer, don't be like, oh, but Josh told me I had to pray this way. Right? As long as we're in the confines of, of truth and reality, right? as long as your prayer isn't like, I think I just realized there's a fourth person of the Trinity. Right? As long as we're staying in these guardrails, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to pull you in unique directions. Perseverance and reverence. Uh, any questions about those, we can maybe, maybe turn back to the end, but I do want to move into part two and look at this, this now very specific form of prayer, uh, which is one way in which we can engage the scriptures. It's a common practice throughout the history of the church known as Lexio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading or sacred reading. Uh, I already drew from Pope Benedict XVI earlier tonight. Here's another one of his lines. He said, I would like in particular to recall and recommend the ancient tradition of Lexio Divina. The diligent reading of sacred scripture, accompanied by prayer, brings about that intimate dialogue in which the person reading hears God who is speaking 
and in praying responds to him with trusting openness of heart. If it is effectively promoted, the pra this practice will bring to the church, I am convinced of it, a new spiritual springtime. We could use that, right? Christianity as a whole could use a new springtime. And so according to Pope Benedict, this is, this is the magic key that unlocks that path uh, to a new springtime, is this practice of Lexio Divina, this practice of a prayerful engagement with sacred scripture. 1.1, Guigo II and the Ladder of Monks. Um, we have probably engaged or married couples here. Any engaged couples? Yeah, okay. So, you know, God willing, if you have kids in a few years and you have a boy, put Guigo at the top of the list. You're, no one is going to have that name. Guigo II lived a long time ago, and he has this little book, uh, this little writing. Guigo II, the Carthusian, and the Ladder of Monks. And he's kind of the first uh, to, to spell out these steps, or at least was the one to famously spell out these steps of the practice of Lexio Divina. He says, one day while working with my hands, I was reflecting on man's spiritual exercises, and suddenly I realized that there are four degrees. Reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation. This is the ladder that lead monks from, from earth to heaven. Although it has a few steps, it is very big and incredibly long. Its base is set on the earth, and its summit reaches above the clouds to penetrate the heights of heaven. The names, order, and use of these steps differ. However, when we carefully study their properties, functions, and hierarchy, they soon seem short and easy because of their usefulness and sweetness. So according to Guigo and the adopted tradition that he set forth, there are these four, what I want to call moments of Lexio Divina rather than steps so that we're not too tempted to think of Lexio Divina as uh, a step one, step two, step three, step four. It can be that, uh, but, but we want to think of it as a, a little more dynamic than just rigorous steps. So think of it as these four moments. The first moment is the reading, the Lexio. He defines it as reading is the careful study of the scriptures, concentrating all one's powers on it. Here's where we pay careful attention to the text. Now, that's an important distinction. A lot could be said about this, but I, I want to draw your attention to that, that this is where we pay careful attention to the text. Because that is the way that the Holy Spirit is communicating something about Jesus to us. We could all go home after this and give a report to someone else about how tonight went. You know, I'll go home to my wife, Liz. I'll say, oh, te teaching went great. Um, I don't think anyone fell asleep. And then someone else is going to go home and say, yeah, I, I really had hid my face well and I fell asleep. And, you know, the coffee was great and, and the handouts were crunchy. Right? We're all talking about the same event, but from different perspectives. Right? The gospel writers and the entire biblical authors, they saw these events, and then they wrote about them in text. And it's in those texts, the, the depiction of the account, 
where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. That's what sacred scripture is. A lot of people witness to the life and the miracles of Jesus. We get four of those accounts that are divine, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Because that's God saying, hey, the way that you saw that, Matthew, the way that you saw that, Mark, that's how I need my people to see that and understand that. And that's where I'm going to speak to them. And so as, as we enter into this first moment of Lexio, I just want to encourage us to pay special attention to the text, because that's where the Holy Spirit is speaking. Perhaps we read it through once. Uh, perhaps it's just a verse. Perhaps it's a, a section, kind of, you know, the, the length of a first reading or a gospel reading. But we read through it slowly. Maybe we read through it a second time to, to refamiliarize ourselves with it. But either way, we let the words that we're reading really penetrate and sink deeply. Letter B, meditatio, meditation. Guigo says that meditation is the busy application of the mind to seek with the help of one's own reason for knowledge of hidden truth. If someone's willing to pipe up. This runs pretty sharply against the grain of what a modern definition of, of meditation might be. What if you just you know, went out on a street corner and said, what's meditation? How would someone might define meditation? Clearing their mind. It's bizarre. I mean, like it has its roots in, in certain, especially Eastern religious movements of, of the emptying of the mind. But that's not Christian meditation. That is not the traditional classic understanding of meditation. Meditation is quite the exact opposite of emptying the mind. Guigo says it's the busy application of the mind to seek truth to seek understanding. Like, it's okay to kind of chew on things for a little bit and say, does that make sense? Okay, it doesn't make sense. How can I, how can I walk through this to get this to make sense? What are some other places I can consult to help this make sense by way of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, right? With the help of one's own reason. Like, I'm meant to apply my reason. We're given the gift of intellect. We have the powers of the intellect and the mind. We have the powers of the will and the soul. It's like if, if I buy a dishwasher and it doesn't wash dishes, that dishwasher isn't working, right? If I have a mind and I'm not using it to think and reason, that mind is not working properly. The mind is made to think and to know and to reason and to learn. So this, this moment of, of Lexio, this meditatio moment, is the application, the busy application of our minds on that text that we just read to consider its meaning. Why did Jesus do that? Why does he get in the boat? Why does he sleep in the boat? What does that mean about Jesus? What is that revealing about Jesus? Letter C. Oratio, the third moment, prayer. Guigo says that prayer is the heart's devoted turning to God to drive away evil and obtain what is good. Now this is isolated. This might be what many people think of as just prayer, right? This is the time when I go and I, and I pray. But notice this is, the, this is a third moment. It's not the first for Guigo. Because in order to healthily enter into this relationship, it has to be a combination of listening and speaking. 
as any human relationship would have. But this is the step where we take our meditation and we turn it into dialogue. Right? Whenever a relationship is healthy, conversation is healthy. So it is with us and the relationship that God is calling us into. We take these things that we were noodling on, right? Why does Jesus get in the boat? Why does he sleep in the boat? And I turn it to God. And it may just it may be in question form still. It may be in answer form. It may be in form of praise. It may be a, a lament of hardship and suffering. But this is when we take the things that we're listening to and, and we turn them back into, into this mode of conversation. Right? Think of the Psalms maybe as, as the model place of what it's like to converse with God. The Catechism calls the Psalms the school of prayer. It, it teaches us and it molds us how to, how to turn all of these inward things and, and relate them outward to God. And the Psalms aren't all hunky-dory. It's not all thank you, God, for everything is, is nice and easy and comfortable. A lot of the Psalms are, why has God forsaken me? Why do I go mourning, oppressed by the foe? Has God forsaken us? Why? Because the human experience kind of has a lot of hardship. And so the Psalms teach us how to express that. It's okay to, to bring heavy-hitting questions to God. He can handle them. This is that stage, this is that moment in prayer where, where we bring that out and we draw that out to the Lord. And then letter D, contemplatio, contemplation. Contemplation is when the mind is in some sort lifted up to God and held above itself so that it tastes the joys of everlasting sweetness. A fuller quote and explanation from Guigo is below there. He says, claims her desire and calls the bridegroom with tender prayer. Then the bridegroom, whose gaze rests on the just and whose ears are so attentive to their prayers that he does not wait until they are fully expressed, suddenly interrupts this prayer. He comes to the longing soul, pours into her the heavenly dew, and anoints her with precious perfumes. He restores the tired soul, nourishes the weak one, drenches the dried one. He makes her forget the earth and detaching her from everything else by his presence. He marvelously strengthens, vivifies, and inebriates her. It's just a stunning um, definition here of what, what it means to enter into this sphere of, of contemplation and prayer with our Lord. Contemplation may be most succinctly described. Best definition I've heard, in, in short, is it's a gaze of love. The gaze of love. It's the it's when the intimacy of a relationship is most enjoyed and experienced. Therefore, it's not something that you can just do, for lack of a better word. You cannot do contemplation. Okay, so the the Christian tradition teaches us that we can we can do lexio. I can say I'm going to read and I read. I can say I'm going to meditate and I'm going to meditate. I can say I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray. I can't say, I'm going to contemplate, and boom, I'm in the ecstasy of contemplation. Contemplation is just one of those tricky but beautiful things that are hard to describe in words and best experienced in person. Think of it like the intimacy that's shared between a man and a woman, right? Between man and wife, uh, where intimacy is fully expressed. In the life of prayer, say we're, we're just starting out to this life of prayer. 
and I, I'm so eager to reach contemplation. Think of it like, well, I'm, I'm discerning a vocation and, and, I'm, and I'm out there dating and I just, I want to experience that intimacy that's reserved for marriage. You're not going to get that on the first date, right? You have to get to know them and, and you have to get to know each other. And then through the sacrament of marriage, you experience an intimacy that, that you, you couldn't even imagine you on, on your first date, right? I think that's maybe the best comparison to contemplatio, to contemplation. It's the fruits of intimacy that are enjoyed by a life-giving relationship. 1.3, the interdependence of the steps and the dynamic character of Lexio Divina. Uh, three quotes here, so allow me to read through them because they're that good. The, the first two come from Guigo. The second two come from, and you can come up and, and look at it or take a picture of it, uh, a book called Sacred Reading, The Ancient Art of Lexio Divina by Michael Casey. And just one of the best in-depth reflections on Lexio Divina. So some some going to be pulling from him as well. Guigo says that the indescribable sweetness of the blessed life is sought through reading, found in meditation, asked for in prayer, and savored in contemplation. Seek by reading, and you will find by meditating. Knock by praying, and you will enter by contemplating. He goes on to say, From what has been said, we may gather that reading without meditation is dry. Meditation without reading is subject to error. Prayer without meditation is lukewarm. Meditation without prayer is fruitless. Prayer with devotion leads to contemplation, whereas contemplation without prayer happens rarely or by a miracle. If anything, that, that we're grasping from that, you realize just how interconnected and interrelated these moments of prayer are. And that's why, that's why there are experiences moments, because there are those who are so dedicated to a life of prayer, those proficients in the prayer life, right? Maybe think of uh, just about in the middle of Lincoln here, we have a convent of sisters called the Pink Sisters. Are you familiar with that at all? Maybe even just with the building? It, it, it's a community of people who have given themselves to a life of prayer. And you would imagine that someone like in a Pink Sisters convent would experience these moments in, in such a, a fluid, masterful way of prayer. Think of it like learning how to play uh, an, an instrument, piano or violin. Like you start with the basics. Like you're going to do your scales. I'm acting like I know how to play violin. I don't. <laughs> um, but you start with the basics, right? And you go step by step by step until you, you master the basics. And then at some point, you can get so good that the basics almost become a hindrance. You bend the rules because you have such a mastery of the topic. So it can be with prayer, right? And that's why we call them moments rather than steps, is that at some point, the, the, the desire is that all of these things just kind of meld into one action, one moment of prayer that we give to the Lord. But it's okay to start as steps. When, when we realize that we're novices. No one takes up a piano or a violin and tries to have a, a concert or a symphony in the first week of playing. But no less, the Lord looks on each effort with a, with a tender father's heart. I, won't, I don't have teenager or adult children yet, but when they're adults and they're able to relate to me in, in a way at, at an adult-to-adult -adult level, I'm going to cherish that. 
in the same way that I cherish it when they come home with macaroni and cheese art on, on <laughs> construction paper. Like my heart as a father is, is wooed by both. But as they mature, I, I almost expect a growing maturity of reception out of them. So it is with the life of prayer. Okay, so it is as we're called into this deeper life of prayer, specifically as we engage with Scripture. 1.4 is kind of an added um, little of the day and age step to Lexio. It's called Resolutio. Uh, that's not how Guigo termed it. He didn't add this resolution stage. Uh, but it's a prudent stage that I think Guigo would agree to, uh, where we just we bring about resolution from prayer. Um, St. Francis de Sales, uh, who's a doctor of the church, he has many great writings on the spiritual life. He says that prayer can be unprofitable or even harmful if you only dwell on virtue without practicing it. That prayer can even be, in rare cases, harmful if I'm only thinking about virtue, but I never inhabit those graces and virtues that I'm thinking on in prayer. So resolutio is just one of those steps that, that say, how can I move forward and grow in grace and in holiness from this time of prayer today? And just like any old smart goal out there, make them, make them humble and make them small. Just to say, I'm, I'm going to do X today. And, and I know I can do that, okay? It's not like I'm going to leave this, this state of prayer and it's like, well, they're going to canonize me in 20 years. Like, well, I can't really control that, right? So Resolutio is an invitation to, to make um, small but, but realistic resolutions from our life of prayer. Just a little bit more here in number two, uh, and then we can wrap up this evening. The practice of Lexio Divina. How to choose a text. Now, these are all just, at the end of the day, best recommendations. And you're going to have to meditate and use that busy application of the mind uh, to find where the Lord's calling you to do best. Okay? So, again, I don't know why I'm starting so negatively, what prayer is not. Uh, <laughs> methods to avoid. Uh, letter A, methods to avoid, to the best of our ability at least. Using the Bible like a medicine chest. Right, sometimes we see maybe like a pamphlet or an image on social media out there. This is like, feeling anxious? This verse. Feeling sad? This verse. Feeling stressed? This verse. Um, and while that's good and it has its place, it can restrict us to reading the Bible uh, really just through the lens of our own difficulties. Uh, so we don't want to only approach Scripture and, and God's Word as, as a medicine chest. Michael Casey in this book, he says, sometimes salvation is a matter of turning our own self-judgments inside out, not reinforcing them. Okay. Cutting the Bible, I would also call this Bible roulette, right? Where we, do I have my Bible? I do have my Bible. And I, I'm guilty of this. Like, all right, I want to pray with scripture today. Like, where's God going to speak to me best? Boom. Luke 1. Like, good luck to the person who ends up in First Chronicles, you know? Um, now, again, I've had great moments of prayer playing Bible roulette and just being like, I don't really have a plan or a structure today, and I just got to open it, and I, and I want to do something, right? And something's better than nothing. But again, um, it's not really a stable method for allowing Christ to, to pierce our hearts and really to lead us in, in this growth of, of maturity in the Christian life. 
it may lean a bit too heavily into the world of superstition. Like I know that the Holy Spirit is going to guide my thumbs and I'm in Job. Whoops. All right. Gospel of John. Like I know the Lord's going to speak to me here. Um, yeah, it, it's not the most conducive to a pattern of, of engaging with God in scripture. Uh, another one, grazing, just sort of an aimless meandering through the Bible, right? Oh, I'll read this bit, skip over that part, uh, leave the things aside that are challenging or unfamiliar, gravitate towards the things that I'm familiar with or that make me feel good. Uh, again, overlap with the others, but these are things that we kind of, we, we, to the best of our ability, would like to avoid as we approach this life of prayer and, and practicing Lexio Divina. Here's an interesting one, uh, kind of big blocky quotes here that I, I think are worth reading. Uh, on the use of the lectionary as the structure for Lexio. Uh, the lectionary is the, the cycle and the structure of readings that you hear on the daily and Sunday masses. Okay, And they're brilliant. They're, uh, they're selected with a lot of wisdom uh, going into it, a lot of interconnectivity between the readings. Um, and there can be pros to following that. I've spent many seasons of life just saying, all right, if, if I'm in a daily or these days a week, I, I know I'm going to sit down and I'm going to set aside this time and I'm going to pray Lexio Divina. Uh, I just follow the daily gospel. And there's a big pro to that. There can also be some cons. So let's break that apart. Pro, there are many people whose fidelity to reading the Bible takes the form of meditating daily on the texts read in the liturgy. This excellent practice often enhances participation in worship and injects into each day an element of personal encounter with God's Word. It transfers the selection of passages away from one's own control and follows the guidance of the liturgy. This much is good. If this habit combines with a more continuous reading of Scripture, there will be many surprises at the number of coincidences that occur. The same message is often conveyed by different channels. In such cases, personal reading and attention to liturgical texts are mutually enlightening. All right, so there can be a great benefit to just following this already given cycle or, or selections of readings. Here's perhaps one way that we could be inhibited. What is restricting in following the text of the Missal unsupported by other scriptural reading? And that's the most important line here. Unsupported by other scriptural reading is that one is materially limited to the excerpts used in worship, many of which lose some of their freshness through overexposure. The problem is compounded when the text is edited or the translation used in the lectionaries is flat and unappealing. Furthermore, reading a preordained slab each day means that the rhythm of Lexio is dictated by the liturgical cycle and less easily responds to personal attraction. Sometimes our personal situation means that we need to cover more distance to find nourishment. At other times, a single sentence may keep us occupied for days. To reach the full depth of Lexio Divina, we must learn to be led by our own attractions and to stay with them for as long as they exercise their fascination over us. It might be argued that it is more convenient simply to follow the liturgical cycle. This is undeniable. What I'm saying is that the traditional practice of personal Lexio Divina was not so. It was a matter of remaining with whole books and reading them in their entirety over a prolonged period. 
And that's really, the, the, this practice of Lectio Divina really has its, its roots in those old monastic communities of the church, those monks who would go off and give their life um, dedicated to a rhythm of prayer every day. And they prayed and offered the Mass every day and read through and, and offered the Mass readings. But then they also had this rhythm of Lectio Divina where they would spend ample time just in one book from cover to cover. They'd spend a month or months with Jeremiah, regardless of if it was being read in Mass or not. And that's, so it's not to say we have to conform ourselves to that, because that's how the practice started. I think he does a good job of painting, hey, here's, here's the fruits of, of following the cycle that's already set before you, and it's convenience. Um, here's the fruits of, of really diving into a, a personal rhythm of prayer in your own selection of, of, of book or bo- books or multiple books. And there can be a benefit there as well. Does that make sense? Okay. Some head nods. Um, I want to go ahead and conclude here. Um, let me just say a, a few words about maybe 2.3. Christ-centered prayer against a moralistic reading of Scripture only. And this ties, this is a good, um, this is a good bookend to how we started of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. That we are made in the image of God. Who is that image? It's Christ. Uh, I say against a moralistic reading of Scripture only, as if to say, just succinctly in summary, when, when we're praying, now this is broader than, than Lexio Divina or not, um, to relieve the burden of overthinking that every moment of prayer or that every portion of Scripture has some immediate moral application for me that day. It does, and it certainly can, but there's an order in which I find that moral application. When I go to prayer, and immediately I'm thinking, like, me, 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 my faults, my desires, how can I make God fit into that? That's what I mean against an over-moralized reading of Scripture or an over-moralized approach to, uh, to prayer, just in general, of saying that I have this, this moral dilemma and this personal problem or this daily agenda and, and I need Christ to, to come fit into that. Rather, as, as Michael Casey said, sometimes the best antidote to that is to just flip that outwards. Sometimes the best way to grow in holiness is to not say what's, or rather to not invite God into my agenda, but to let God invite me into his agenda. Okay, so I approach a time of prayer. It's okay to have a soft agenda to say, hey, I'm going to go in there. Uh, I know I'm going to pray. And there's this big thing going on in my life right now, so I'm probably going to end up talking to God about that. But I'm going to let him set the stage first. And I'm going to let him be the one to speak to me. And I'm going to be let, and I'm going to let him be the one to reveal himself to me. Because I can only find myself in him. Right? Christ reveals man to man himself. So if I'm searching for answers about myself, it's it's misordered to go to scripture and say, hmm. What does this reveal about myself? First, I have to say, what does this reveal about Christ? And now that I know Christ in this way, now that I know Christ 
more. What does that reveal about myself? That's, that's the way that we approach prayer. Christ-centered, relationship-centered. Let, let Christ be the one who's setting the agenda. Because he, 100% of the time, will have a better agenda for you than you can create for yourself. Okay? Uh, we had to summarize some things there at the end, and I'm sorry that we, we didn't get to go to them in detail. Um, but I, it, my pleasure to be here with you tonight. Thank you so much for letting me share uh, on prayer and Lexio Divina specifically. I have a chart. It is not a foolproof chart. Um, it's actually rather a simple chart, just at the very end of your notes. Um, if you are a writer or you like to see something in steps and you want to give Lexio Divina uh, a shot, feel free to take that chart at the end of your notes and say, hey, you know, this is something I've never tried before and I want to try it out. Here's just a helpful guide for you to use as a tool. If you are a writer or you like to see something in steps and you want to give Lexio Divina uh, a shot, feel free to take that chart at the end of your notes and say, hey, you know, this is something I've never tried before and I want to try it out. Here's just a helpful guide for you to use as a tool. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska on Apple iTunes or on Podbean and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.